Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. I'm a sex and relationships educator and this is my podcast for adults. A range of different shows. This one is an Ask Justin show, so I'm going to answer some questions from listeners that they're very kindly sent through. Thank you for your hashtag content. Um, I'm going to answer these questions around uh, monogamy and non-monogamy and also one about BDSM. I'm also going to ask a, answer a question which contains some reference to sexual assault, um, but there's going to be no detail in that question. I'm not going to go into any detail of what happened in the sexual assault. It's just I'm mentioning the phrase sexual assault. So that's just a content note up front. If you like this show, if you like this kind of show, and you would like more regular shows like this, and would like me to produce more regular shows like this, you have to pay me. (laughs) Uh, I need to be able to turn this into a job so that I can make more time in my week to produce more shows. I do have some excellent interviews coming up with um, academics in the field and writers, uh, but I need time in my week to be able to do it. So please, if you can support the show, please, 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 anything from just a pound a month would be really useful via patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships you do get occasional bonus added extra content um, but mostly it's just to support the show you also have access to a discord server where you can chat to each other about some of the issues that come up in the show and maybe make some new friends Uh, but mostly it is to support the show Um, again it will just really help me to make time in my week to do more of these so please if you can support the show patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships okay so on to the first question i'm in a long-term monogamous relationship with someone i adore my sweetheart is not currently feeling like sex very often significantly sex significantly less than what i would like i'm currently dealing with this by reading and writing steamy fiction and also having lots of solo sex i'm still a bit sad about the lack of partnered sex though I know that some people cope with this via polyamory, but I know that many people break up if they change a monogamous relationship into a polyamorous one. Do you know of anyone who has successfully gone from a monogamous relationship to a polyamorous one? Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, Great question. I do have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, I do know people who have gone from a monogamous relationship into a polyamorous one. Uh, Both successfully and and non-successfully, there are many, many, many people who have opened up their relationships and there are many people out there listening to the show who probably will be able to support you and give you their thoughts on it too so it might be something you could chat about in the discord server again available via patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships chat about it there um yeah so i've got a lot of thoughts about this and i've got a lot of thoughts about how you can prevent um this from breaking up too um i think that if you were to look at this as a binary of well I kind of need more sex, so I need to shift from a monogamous relationship to a polyamorous one. I think that is the most likely way that you will break up. Okay, what you need to do is to bring in as much choice as possible. You need to give your relationship the capacity to breathe and to be where it needs to be and to allow for change and for allow, to allow for different kinds of changes, to create a container this is meg john likes to talk about this to create a container wherein it ne- it can do the things that it needs to do okay and i think you need to do this both for if you stay monogamous or if you move to something which is more to do with ethical non-monogamy um, or polyamory they're two different things which i'll explain in a second um 
So I think first and foremost, we need to think about the sexual discrepancy in the relationship, which you talked about. So sexual discrepancy is just where one person wants sex more than the other or a different kind of sex or um, or even like sex at a different time, maybe. So this is something that you could talk about. Um, the sexual discrepancies in relationships are common. They're incredibly common. Uh, but for most relationships, they actually aren't game changers like most relationships that where they have a sexual discrepancy the sex isn't the most important thing uh it's often other things that are way more important particularly in long-term monogamous relationships uh, so i think it's just important to normalize this and actually to expect for there to be times when um one person might want uh, more sex than the other and that that might shift and that might shift again in the future so i think that being able to sit with that is really important. I'm not telling you it's not a problem or not something you should be sad about or want to want to change more directly, but I think it's more important to kind of, I think it's also important to treat this as a norm because often when we exceptionalize sex in this way and say that this is, you know, when society says, well, sex is an inherently important part of relationships, it puts a lot of pressure on sex to be the answer to everything. And actually it's not. Um, the research in, in the Enduring Love um, project, that again, a project that Meg John was involved in with Jackie Gabb from Open University, they found that, you know, there were many, many more things that were way more important. Okay, so let's not see sex as like the panacea. So, but however, how do we, how do we navigate this? Well, first of all, you can be more interested and curious in what's going on in terms of the sex life, your sex life at the moment. I've got more advice about this uh, later, but also Meg John and I did a whole episode on sexual discrepancies uh, in uh, in our previous guys. If you go back through the Culture Sex Relationships uh, stream on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com forward slash culture sex relationships, You'll see that after a while you'll get to Meg John and Justin podcast, which is how this podcast started out. And we have a podcast or two maybe in there about sexual discrepancies. We also wrote a book called Enjoy Sex, How, When and If You Want To, uh, which has now been republished as Sex, A Practical Guide, where we talk about how to navigate this and how to deal with this. Basically, there are lots of different motivations for why people might want to have sex. There are lots of different things that people want to get out of sex. There are lots of different ways... That where people might feel in the mood for sex or not feel in the mood for sex, sex might there might also be lots of different forms of sexual activities, um, or which also includes uh, sensuality and touching as well as um, fantasy that we can bring into play here. So if you just see sex as one thing that you're not having enough of, then you're pos possibly not being curious enough in, about what sex is doing in the relationship and the things that you might be able to work out. So I've got another. Uh, another resource that you could use is the make your own sex manual create your own sex manual i must get this right at one point i wrote it so i don't know what anyway so if you go if you go to um megjohnandjustin.com forward slash publications you'll see some zines that we have written one is called make your own relationship user guide which i'll talk about in a second and the other one is make your own sex manual i'm pretty sure that's what it's called and there's another one called understanding your erotic fantasies zine yeah there's another one. There's another three. They're all workbooks, basically, and you can download them for £2.50 each. And they're really um, excellent value for money. But in the uh, the Make Your Own Sex Manual zine, we've got lots of different workbook-style activities that you can work through as a couple to try and figure out how you can best meet each other's needs from sex, different kinds of sex that you might want to be having, why you might want to have sex, the, what the motivations for... 
for, for, for what you want from sex, where it sits in your relationship, how you want to feel about it, and how you can also think about what makes you more up for sex and less up for sex. So there's loads of stuff in there where you can start to think about different ways of shifting what might quite feel like an ampass. You know, if, if you get into a, if you've got yourself into this kind of stuck pattern of this is what sex is, I'm not having enough of it, then you're re- you've kind of closed off a lot of options. So I think it's really important to be curious about that and that zine can help you. The other zine that we have there, the Make Your Own Relationship User Guide, Create Your Own Relationship User Guide. Create Your Own Relationship User Guide. <laughs> anyway, we've got this Relationship User Guide zine um, that you can go through. And a lot of people have found this really, really helpful, both for their monogamous relationships, but also when they're navigating into non-monogamous relationships. Because, again, it's a workbook which helps you to think about some of the key uh, things that might be going on in your relationship and things that you might want to change. And how you can find a different way of allowing for that relationship to exist where it needs to be. Okay. Um, so try to get over these ba- these binaries, this kind of binary thinking. You have to bring in as much choice and as agency as possible. You're much more likely to have problems in your relationship if you if you don't allow for many different solutions that might be at play here. See this as an opportunity to look at your relationship as a whole and to bring everything in. Because if we, if we see relationships as being a complex assemblage of lots of different things going on, shifting one thing can quite dramatically shift another thing. So it might be that there's another thing that feels entirely unrelated to sex, that if it got shifted, then suddenly sex might become much more available to both of you, right, for example. Um, so you need to be quite curious about what's going on in the monogamous context of your relationship too because rather than seeing it as this kind of static fixed thing that you might have agreed to several years ago and made certain commitments about um, you know love is ongoing love is an ever ongoing changing and evolving process in a relationship so I think that to see it as this kind of dynamic active thing rather than a kind of a passive fixed thing is the most important thing for any kind of relationship So if you do that, you might start to shift things around the sex, but you also might start to see, okay, well, where are the possibilities for having relationships with others, Uh, which could be bringing in, thinking about our our friendships, our relationship with ourselves, but also potential relationships with other people that might in some way be sexual. And this is where the thinking about non-monogamy comes in. Again, try not to think about very binary black and white terms about uh, polyamory versus monogamy. There is, think about... Uh, there being a broad umbrella of what we call ethical non-monogamy and there being lots of different ways of doing that in 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 different formats loads of different ways of doing it from kind of monogamish things that are quite close to monogamy where there is a certain degree of allowance for um, you spending time with others or snogging others or having particular kinds of sex with others but very much as a kind of a little bit of an add-on very occasionally or now and again with someone if the if the opportunity arises some couples have different rules about this for example um, like a don't ask don't tell uh, situation or a I want to know when it's happening but I don't want to know any details or um, it's fine if something happens but I'd want you to come home and sleep with me afterwards you know people have you know couples create their own rules about this and this is why we created this workbook you know to help people to navigate this for themselves 
But then there is moving from this, which is at one end of the spectrum, more towards kind of openness, where it's more accepted that somebody might have somebody more regular that they see. Often monogamous couples might might one or both of them might be able to find people who are willing to be fuck buddies. So for people who they see on a reasonably regular basis for for sex, and that that sex is very much you know, it might be that that you might arrange something with someone else who's quite interested in in sex, but outside of committed loving relationships or where they're just interested for sex for sex's sake or where it could be like a nice friendship where sex is like a, an extra thing added on top so like a friends with benefits type thing some people have a very different relationship to sex than others for some sex is a very it's very uh, very important for them for that sex is a very intimate thing and that, that sex is part of a very intimate relationship others can have a much more kind of casual recreational attitude to sex that you know it's something that they might enjoy in the similar way that they might enjoy eating food with someone or uh, going to the cinema with someone or joining a book group you know some people can have a very casual attitude towards sex I'm going to come on to how we deal with other people how we bring other people into our lives in a second but so there's that kind of you might find someone who's like a friend with benefits kind of somewhere in the middle but then polyamory is more towards the other end of the spectrum where you're bringing in the possibility for there to be love with somebody else or romantic love or feelings of romantic love or saying that you're in love with other, someone else or calling someone else a boyfriend girlfriend them friend or you know even a partner um, or a spouse so you know there's a huge different spectrum here and people can kind of do those in very hierarchical ways where they have one person that they live with who they do a lot of their family stuff with that they share a lot of their finances with and someone else that they might be in a living relationship with but they just don't do some of those kinds of things or it might be that it's shared more equitably around or you know it's people again people make up their own rules there are no hard and fast rules for this but lots of people have found different ways to contain their relationships in a way that works for them that's all this is about okay so try not to see this as a binary either and again once you've had the conversation about what's going on in your monogamous relationship you might be more able to see well how might this fit like where where feels comfortable and being able to talk about this in this kind of ongoing kind of way is just really important rather than like sitting down and having a big chat about this can you see this as being like a process that might just start you off I talked about this in my last Ask Justin episode for this podcast, actually, which you can find um, uh, back if you go back through the feed. Somebody asked about, you know, making our own menus, which is a very, it's a very common and increasingly popular thing to do to kind of, for couples to kind of write down all the things that they're into, either sexually or in their relationship, and um, as a way of intentionally changing things or intentionally stating things. And the question was like, well, in what way might that limit us? And I'm, yeah, and I agree, yeah, that can limit us. As soon as we write something down, that immediately shifts our relationship as well. But I think it is important just as a way to start to be intentional about your relationship, to notice where there have been changes, to notice where there might be more changes, but to start this off as this kind of seeing it as a much more organic kind of process, okay? The other thing here as well is that when you're meeting other people, just to, to switch to thinking about the other people, is that you can't see the other people that might change your assemblage, that you know might change your, what's going on in your relationship, but also in your friendships. You can't just see them as this kind of passive object 
that you have sex with and then you go back to your home and everything's fine you have to kind of see them as someone who also has their own assemblage of people their own deep sense of interconnectedness with other people in terms of their romantic relationships or their friendships or just as an individual you're changing them as much as there's a potential for them to change you okay so you have to be able to find ways of dealing with that too you can't just kind of treat this other person as an object basically for that you can um just shag <laughs> uh, so when the when you start to make these changes some of them might be small some of them might be big um but you have to just find ways to you're more able to find ways if you can start if you can talk about them the other thing about this as well is that we have to think about consent here and we have to think about how this kind of works like it sounds really consensual to be able to say okay well we're going to explore ethical non-monogamy we're going to kind of try to land at a kind of a monogamish kind of place where it's okay for someone to see someone to have like a someone that they see for sex reasonably infrequently or now and again this is the kind of thing that we want it's often not that easy to land in a particular place and to kind of fix your relationship into another place because these other people also have feelings but also everything is relational so if you start relating to someone and start having really great sex with them when you have if, if you start having really great sex with them which is another thing that we should talk about probably but if you start having really good sex with someone you do start to feel what we call what barbara fredrickson calls micro moments of positivity resonance like you do start to feel quite intoxicated quite in love with the other person if you're having really good sex a lot of biological things that are happening with the other person okay and we might choose to kind of remember them and hold on to them and kind of take that with us or we might choose to be able to just leave them where they are and as soon as we've left the bedroom or as soon as we're in the pub afterwards we kind of forget about them but during good sex those kinds of things can happen and that changes you and that changes your relationship at home everything is going to be in flux and changes okay but allowing for change allowing for flex is the key here because if you're just one if you're if you're approaching this as a our relationship is completely fixed and mustn't change apart from we just add this thing on then your relationship is much more likely to break up and much more likely to be hurtful to everyone involved okay um so i think that's it i think basically the, the other thing that I'll just say here is that the, th the reason why this is tricky and talking about it is tricky is because it goes against the grain. It goes against the common sense idea of how we're meant to do love and relationships. That if you talk about them or do this level of work on them or, you know, get out a Google Doc and literally just kind of list lots of things and make bullet points and you each have different, you know, font sizes or font types or font colors to indicate who's saying who and you comment on each other's thing or you're going through a workbook with a pencil it might not feel very sexy or romantic but that's because it goes against the grain of, of what culture tells us romance and sex should be and again we have to remember that the culture around uh this culture we have about you know the rom-com kind of love the happily ever after um two people meet and there's amazing chemistry and then everything's great for the rest of their lives is an incredibly modern phenomenon and i mean modern as in like it's not even 100 years old yet um, this is a cultural thing and it's a cultural thing that will probably shift in, in future generations um, 
hopefully, uh, because I think it's pretty toxic to have this idea of romantic relationships as being the most important kind of relationship. Anyway, that's another podcast. Um, so um, it goes against the grain, and doing this kind of intentional work can be tricky for that reason. So it's really important to notice what's going on outside as well, to notice that, you know, culture's telling us that we have to kind of stick this relationship out and to and to be like this forever and actually to do this kind of work means going against the grain a bit and doing things that are a bit um different because culture also tells you that as soon as you talk about it then the magic's gone and then it's all over however it's much more consensual much more i think loving to be able to have these kinds of conversations because also it can feel incredibly celebratory or celebratory I'll pronounce that both ways. It can be incredibly celebratory um, to be able to go through some of these resources that I've suggested and be like, wow, yeah, our relationship is really fucking brilliant at this. I love it when we do this. I've, I feel these feelings when we do this. And oh, I'm just so proud of what we're doing here. As well as looking at, well, these are some of the things that can shift, or I'm not so into this, or I thought that this was a thing you're into, and now that I know that you're not, I'm so relieved because I thought for all these years this was a thing that you, was really important to you. It turns out you thought that it was important to me and you were doing this, and so blah, 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 right? Um, and so by doing that, you also create this, you also create this celebratory kind of idea of you know what your relationship is that doesn't fix it, but it allows for it to feel kind of um, sturdy but with flex. And I think that allows for more resilience. Um, but in order to be more resilient, you have to take risks. And so that means being brave. So my final advice is be brave. <laughs> Lean into the thing that you are not wanting to do. and But do it gently. And don't just do it with these binaries of we're going to do this or we're going to do this. Get the resources. Get the zines. Start to open up lines of conversation. And see where it takes you. Okay, And don't try to put a deadline on it, but just open things up and see if this is something you can talk about if there's something if it gets to a point where you really can't talk about it and you get stuck that's the time to think about whether this is where the the relationship needs to change whether it needs to end or relationships end um, eventually i hope that was helpful next question i've recently become interested in bdsm and would like to be able to experiment with this not necessarily in a sexual way However, I have a very straight-laced job. I am a secondary school teacher. I'm afraid that if anyone at work were to find out I was participating in kinky activities outside my committed relationship, it could affect my employability, and in a worst-case scenario, I'm worried I could be accused of acting in a way that could bring the profession into disrepute, which would be against the requirements of my contract. I do not see kink as being in any way unethical. However, I fear the general public might view it as morally dodgy and therefore off-limits for someone who works with kids. Do you have any ideas on how to navigate personal and professional personas when dealing with taboo topics or activities, especially those that are not well understood within the wider community. Um, yep, got lots of thoughts and um, ideas about this. Thank you for your excellent question. First of all, we should say this is a cultural problem, not a you problem. So yes, I will give you advice at the end about how you might navigate this, but I think the first and foremost we have to recognise that yes, this is a cultural problem and that there is a certain degree of 
there might be a certain degree of prejudice and discrimination and misunderstanding in broader culture. Why is that? Because there's not enough education. <laughs> uh, and whenever there's education about BDSM, it's often extremely problematic, like, for example, Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, so, you know, broader culture is not doing a great job at educating people about BDSM. Uh, and it's not doing, well, it doesn't do a great job at educating culture, educating us about sex and relationships neither which is why this podcast exists um but uh let's have a look at culture let's have a look at what culture says so in 2015 yougov did a survey and they found that actually bdsm is pretty common they found that uh, 12 percent of people in the uk had taken part in it and that 16 percent would like to uh, that's way more common in the under 30s, where it was more like kind of 19-20%. Uh, um, so because that was in 2015, uh, it's 2021 now, that number may well have increased, right? Um, so it's actually pretty common. But also, um, according to uh, Meg John, Meg John is also an expert on uh kink i should say at this point i'm going to try and get mag john on to do a show where we do a kind of a kink 101 we have talked about kink in previous podcasts but i think it would be really useful for us to do a whole show just devoted to kink we kind of see kink as being one of the sexual or sensual activities that we might do with others and we've so we've talked about it in that way but i think it might be useful for us to do a whole show on it so um i will get them on to do that at some point in the future um but as meg john says on uh, their website rewriting the rules um it's really common to have fantasies about bdsm so they reckon like two-thirds of people have had fantasies about bondage and other aspects of bdsm are not that far behind when it comes to fantasy but also if we think about different practices that might uh, constitute bdsm so for example pinning someone's hands down or blindfolding someone or spanking someone or uh, some kind of name calling um allowing someone to take charge having uh, playing a role uh, being tickled all these things being done consensually could be classed as bdsm but if we were to take one of those things and say you know have you ever done this probably maybe most people have done one of those things in their lives okay it's just that some people might call it bdsm other people might call it sex other people might call it not sex as well um there's also no evidence that people who do BDSM have worse mental health outcomes than and, than those who don't. And also they're not more likely to be abusive, although abuse still definitely happens in the BDSM community. And they're not, not also more likely to end up in casualty with injuries. Okay, um, So that's the evidence for, um, for how common BDSM is. And whether and, and whether it's uh, harmful to the people who practice it, but also let's look at culture and what culture says. So, in the same YouGov survey I talked about before, they were asking, um, should society discourage? What should society do about about BDSM? And seventy one percent of people thought that society should not discourage these sexual practices as long as people are freely consenting to it and it's as it's no one else's business. Seventy one percent okay in 2015 so i would argue that you know culture is malleable culture is constantly shifting if you'd have asked that question in uh, 1995 it might not have been a majority if you would have asked that in 1955 um it would it would be very much the minority even though kinsey found that a great deal of people were taking part in in kink in the 1940s and 1950s but culture has definitely shifted. And again, this was 2015, so, and 71% of people thought that BDSM shouldn't be discouraged. 
so long as it was consensual and, and they thought it was no one else's business. So that might be even higher now. Okay. So maybe we're underestimating culture. And we do have to remember that culture shifts, okay? And to understand that, yeah, it's pretty common. People understand that it happens, but mostly that it happens behind closed doors. And it's not something that necessarily people advertise to other people or want to advertise to other people or want it to be advertised to. Um, not advertised as in sold, but talked about uh, on an interpersonal basis. So how might we manage this personally well culture shifts when we talk about it so when more people talk about it personally with other people um, and also when people get educated about it from other people then culture definitely shifts you know if we know someone is taking part in bdsm and you know they're a mate of ours and that shifts our opinion around bdsm right but that doesn't mean that everyone who takes part in bdsm has a responsibility to tell everyone or to out themselves to everyone that this is something that they do okay and clearly still in your situation some because some individuals have very strong feelings about bdsm um then it an individual can make your life difficult in school schools are um microcultures uh, but within those microcultures, some of those pe some of the individuals have more power than others. And so, if someone with a lot of power over your employment has a particular particularly strong view about BDSM, who does think that it should be uh, something which society should discourage, then they might make your life difficult, and they might choose to try and um, to try and you know to make it affect you in in whatever in whatever way. Um, so I think that you just want to, you want to take kind of appropriate steps just to be slight, you know, a bit cautious about this. We don't often really know what happens in each other's intimate lives, whether this is to do with sex or kink or, or whatever, you know, there is this kind of idea that we have a personal life and a more public kind of facing life or a work facing life. Um, so I would just put this in, you know, we don't have to know everything about every, everyone else. Some people who are in BDSM communities seek to identify with BDSM and that it becomes something about their kind of personality, which is fine for them and can be important to them. But it's not a necessary requirement of taking part in BDSM, okay? And also, BDSM doesn't have to be in any way public, right? It, it can be something that just entirely takes place with, it, with two people in a room. Uh, I mean, BDSM, there are BDSM clubs, and dungeons and parties where this can take place but again not everyone who does bdsm goes to those parties and you don't have to choose to go to those parties though pretty sure that well i know that there are people who go to those parties who do have straight lace jobs who do kind of manage it so to a degree this is to do with risk and reward and i can't really tell you about how to manage that okay and how to manage your risk i think the important thing here just to say though is that a lot of people don't want to know what goes on in our personal lives. Like colleagues might not want to know what happens in our sex or intimate lives. Uh, I might not want to know what happens in my colleagues' sex and relationships' lives. There are certain things, you know, that we don't talk about. But it's just never appropriate to talk about our intimate lives with students. So as long as you never talk about your, your sex life, your intimate life with students, then... Um, I don't think you're you're stepping over the line. I think that it's just never appropriate to talk about this stuff with young people. And uh, whenever I work with young people, I don't tell them anything about me. Uh, I, you know, they know very little about who about who I am, and I've never said ever to a young person what happens in my sexual life. And I'll never really say on this podcast what I may or may not get up to um, 
sexually. Um, there might be times when I kind of you know joke about it, but it's not something that that I talk about. And so that's a really important boundary. No teacher should ever be talking about their sex life in front of their students ever. It makes you a bad if you're particularly if you're doing sex education. It makes you a bad sex educator. <laughs> um, and we all agree that that's not just my opinion. We don't talk about personal stuff right in front of young people. And so I think that's a really important thing for you just to think about because of your because of your role. The other thing I'll just say here is that you can get support from local meetups, uh, which are often known as munchers. Um, and so uh, they are just meetings in pubs, cafes, uh, and um, when we're allowed to go to those things again, there are also on. I'm sure there are online munchers that you can go to, and where you just chat to folk. And again, they're just like they're not uh, they're not like parties where people are doing things with each other. They're just social events where people just go and chat and meet other like-minded people. And many of them have straight less jobs, and you can just kind of like chat to them and see how they manage their risks, and see who they feel like they can talk to about stuff, and who they and who they can't, and just yeah, how they go about this. Um, and a lot of that is to do with trust and, and knowing how you know, knowing whether you can trust a colleague, and you know when a colleague becomes a friend, and whether you tell them something or not. But you know. But very, this is very much up to you and up to you to set those kinds of boundaries and to be and to understand um, how cautious you need to be and might want to be. I think that's it. It's mostly a culture problem, but just set some sensible boundaries for yourself as well that are appropriate. There are a couple of resources that I would really recommend that you get as well. One called The New Topping Book and another book called The New Bottoming Book. Uh, both written by Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy. They are really excellent, uh, big, kind of like um, beginner's guides or guides to people who want to explore BDSM further. Um, really useful and practical. Um, whilst I'm talking about Dossie Easton and Janet and Janet Hardy, they also wrote a really excellent key resource for opening up uh, your relationship and um, yeah, other aspects of relationships too, actually. It's called The Ethical Slut. It's really great. Um, and yeah, so get that by Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy. Really, really great books. Okay, before we get to the third and final question, just a reminder that if you would like more of these shows and you would like to support the show and you would like to help me turn this into a job for me to do more regularly, please support the show on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. I also use any money I raise through that to pay freelancers who come on the show too. So um, trying to be fair and equitable about this too. So please support the show, patreon.com forward slash, ah, forward slash culture sex relationships. Um, I'm also on Twitter as well, at Twitter culture sex rel, if you have any feedback um, or anything you'd like to chat to me about. If you have any feedback, you can also email me culturesexrelationships at gmail.com. Okay, final question. Again, just a reminder, I am going to mention uh, sexual assault, uh, but I'm not going into any detail here. So, I hey, um, I have some questions around the links between trauma-related nervous system arousal and sexual arousal. We use the word arousal in both cases, so to me it suggests that somehow it's a similar process, neurobiologically or whatever. I have CPT, CPTSD, so that is... 
uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and I'm on the autism spectrum. I'm a trans mask non-binary person with a history of sexual assault. I noticed that in sexual encounters, even when they are fully consensual, it's sometimes hard for me to disentangle fear arousal and desire arousal, which then makes it hard to know what I want or where my boundaries are, because when my flight, fight, fear, fawn response gets activated, I get out of touch with myself. I will explain all of this in my answer, by the way, but this I'm just reading out the question so far. Being autistic and easily getting overwhelmed with sensory input doesn't help with that either. BDSM, in a way, I guess complicates that further because in a way that often plays with fear arousal. For example, in a spanking, part of the play can be about the sensation and the pain, but part of the fun is also the anticipation and making the moves move as if you'll get hit and then hitting at a different moment than expected. For me, that activates my fear arousal, and I assume it does for most people, within a sexual context. But somehow that's a choice I and other people make. And it does seem to be have beneficial effects in terms of lowering my general level of trauma arousal, which seems counterintuitive. So I guess less of a clear question and more of a topic I'm curious about understanding more would be happy to hear any thoughts you might have on this. Thanks. Uh, what a great question. And I think your question's so good because you've really articulated your own experience really well. And I think this is the thing that we need to aim for whenever... Certainly whenever I'm doing any advice uh, work, what I try to do is to give people the tools that they can understand their own experience. I think there's something that I've learned from Catherine Angel's book and Catherine Angel's work generally is, you know, the history of the study of sex, the history of uh, often a biomedical approach to studying sex often leaves us none the wiser or often creates more questions than it answers. And I think really... The, the key is to try to understand our own unique personal experiences and how our own experiences in the past have shaped how we feel about sex at that moment and to be curious about what's going on for us and to be curious about what's going on for us next. So it sounds like you've got quite a good understanding of what's going on for you. I do have some like further thoughts and some clarifications here that I can chat about as well for the, for the general audience. But I think this kind of thing of trying to be an expert of your own experience is the key and it sounds like you're doing a great job of that so far. So I think here I just need to explain have uh, explain as best as I can um, about the autonomous nervous system. Um, so the autonomous nervous system is basically part of our nervous system that regulates our bodily functions. Okay, so the things that we do without realizing that we do all the time. So uh, needing to pee, um, feeling thirsty, uh, breathing, um, sighing, yawning, hard-ons. You know, that's, our, that's to, you know, bonus. That's all to do with our autonomous nervous system. And the autonomous nervous system uh, is divided into two parts, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. And actually, they're a bit misleading because they do, they sound like, they do the opposite to what they actually do. So um, the sympathetic nervous system is the part of the nervous system which responds when the body is feeling in some way under attack or feeling like it might be harmed. So it, it goes into a mode of just jumping up and protecting us. And it goes into a very kind of react mode. Okay. And so lots of things might happen. Our pupils might narrow, might um, dilate so that we have a very tunnel vision uh, we might find it very difficult to hear like peripheral sounds because we're focusing on what um, harms might be very kind of near us our 
breathing can intensify and and push blood around the body more because we're just more heightened we might start to feel the uh, a kind of attention in various parts of our body we might feel like our, our our feet are kind of ready to kind of run or or we might feel kind of ready to kind of fight um lots of kind of things happen when the sympathetic nervous system really takes over okay and that can put us in what you talk about the four f's so when i said uh fight that's called the fight or flight mode okay uh and there are the the other two f's are fawn and freeze and uh so they are they are what happens when the body is in a state of react and in a state of um a trauma response basically this is something that meg john and i have talked about a lot on our our shows uh, recently so again if you scroll back through the culture sex relationships um feed then you'll find the meg john and justin shows where we talk about some of this stuff so that's the sympathetic nervous system the body is just like react 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 keep it safe keep it safe the other side of the autonomous nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system and that is the the bit which is like let's chill uh let's just be in the body let's just calm down and so what the parasympathetic nervous system does is to work in tandem with the sympathetic nervous system to calm it down uh, so in this really great book where i'm getting this information from the idiot brain by dean burnett uh, which is really, really good. He describes the parasympathetic nervous system as like a, a sitcom character. So he's like the really, he's the really, or he or they or she are the really relaxed character who's lying on the couch saying, "Oh, you got nothing to worry about. Just chill, relax, watch TV, eat popcorn." But but the sympathetic nervous system is the one who's really anxious and up and jumping around on the sofa, being like, "React, react! I have to do these things." Okay, and they kind of work in tandem, and so. If we get um, triggered, if we start to have um, a trauma response, or even if we just get incredibly stressed out from something, we need time for the parasympathetic nervous system to kick in, to take over, and to start to calm us down. And so in, in times of extreme stress, it can take 60 minutes, 90 minutes for the parasympathetic nervous system to really kick in and to calm us down. Okay? Does this make sense? So when you talk about the being out of touch with yourself that sounds to me like it's the the sympathetic nervous system going into overdrive and kind of taking over and taking more of a role in what's going on in your body okay uh that's what that sounds like but if we see these two in terms of um what might these two parts of the nervous system in terms of what might happen when we think about sex one is more responsible for the feelings of like fear and excitement so adrenaline you know when adrenaline is coursing through us and the kind of excitement and the anticipation and our breathing increasing and the other one is about the relaxation and the deep sense of feeling in your body but also the parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for boners so it is responsible for blood being sent into um into the genitals but also other parts of the body too experience this and and the the blood gets trapped there and that's called vasocongestion which i've talked about i've got an amusing alan partridge joke about that um tweet me if you want to hear the joke uh so um so these kind of during sex there are two things going on so there's the kind of the excitement and the anticipation um but also sometimes the fear that you talked about with bdsm but also the possibility for it to be feeling very sexual in a kind of an embodied arousal, vasocongestion, boner kind of way with the parasympathetic nervous system. And they are kind of playing tennis with each other, it seems to be. From what I've read, my understanding of it is that they feed off each other during the sexual experience. Okay, So 
this is perhaps what you're describing when you're talking about fear arousal and desire arousal. Um, it might be that during certain uh, times when you're having sex, that what you're describing as fear arousal is like this is um, this is my body going through uh, something which feels like re-experiencing some kind of trauma, but that it feels in some way sexual still. Um, and so, or but that might feel quite different to when perhaps the parasympathetic nervous system is more kind of taking control and, and taking over. Just to complicate all of this further, we know that some people when they experience a sexual assault might also experience some react bodily reactions which are which are vasocongestion. So they might experience um, an erection, they might experience blood rushing to the genital area, and they might experience lubrication. And that is the body doing something that is very confusing for someone who's going through a sexual assault because that bodily reaction feels analogous to what pleasure might feel like but it's not pleasurable obviously it's just the body doing arousal to keep itself safe basically so again we can't just look at this biomedically we have to look at this that the body just sometimes reacts and so we have to look at this in the context of the sex that we're having and what that means for us at any particular time okay so it's very important that we don't just have this biological understanding of sex because that won't get us anywhere. But I'm just explaining some of the biology because it might fit in with some of uh, your ideas and your, your experiences of where the fear arousal comes in and what desire feels like for you. So where what the difference between, for you between arousal and desire, I think, is like uh, a really interesting and more complicated way of looking at this. Okay, So think of the... The, again, the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system just kind of playing tennis with each other and they're both reasonably equal kind of participants in during sex and that's what might be going on in your body. When we get to the BDSM part of this, it feels like this might be for you a more controlled way of playing with these two modes. Okay, So that feeling of adrenaline and the rush um, of the sympathetic nervous system, of the anticipation of being spanked, the anticipation of um, just the general anticipation, the, the rush that we might get with uh, BDSM, versus, uh, with also the, the the real embodiment of um, that you might get from from the feeling of being very aroused. Okay, so it might seem it sounds like the BDSM is you finding the correct container or the right container for you in a way where you can kind of feel those things without stepping out of your body without being without as you say getting out of touch with yourself does that kind of make sense it sounds like a way where you can experience both of those things simultaneously so an interesting thing for you to think about might be what is it that you can learn from the bdsm and how can you take that into into the 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 sex or the the content that you have that is not bdsm does that kind of make sense so it might be when it comes to the sexual encounters, you might need to have a clearer idea about what it is that you're going to do in advance. So you say that everything is consensual, but at some point it gets a bit too overwhelming and a bit too much. It might be that you need to take out some of the things that you're doing. It might be that you need to go into sexual encounters with the idea that you might do one or two things and see how that goes for a bit rather than the kind of amorphous ongoing kind of consent that you're. it seems to be that you're, you're kind of talking about. Because... It can be very difficult uh, to be in touch with our body, as you say, when we're feeling overwhelmed. But we're, I think we're less likely to feel overwhelmed if we just 
concentrate on a couple of things or take a few things off the table for a bit and see how that feels because it feels like you need to bring in a bit more of the container that you have with BDSM into your intersects and so you could do that by say you know it could be uh, you know, a snog feels good um, stroking me here feels good can we just not do this for a bit or can we do uh, if you're finding sex overwhelming I think for a lot of people because a lot of um, uh, the 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 narratives we have for sex are that it's meant to be something that we're doing to each other and with each other so for example um, if someone's giving someone oral sex uh, then the other person might feel a pressure that oh they have to be doing something back simultaneously and that's not always the case sometimes it's just much less overwhelming and much easier for one person to do one thing at a time does that kind of make sense so taking take off some of the things take off the table some of the things where you are both simultaneously doing things to each other so a snog for example might not be such a great thing because you are simultaneously kissing each other right and you know moving your tongue around each other's lips and that might feel a bit too overwhelming but for someone to maybe kiss you on the chest or for you to kiss them on their chest or for you to kiss another part of their body and for them to lie down might not feel so overwhelming because it might not feel so um simultaneous does that make sense so again this is for you to kind of figure out but it might be that those kinds of things with a bit more spaciousness and perhaps some more conversation beforehand and maybe coming up with a kind of um, almost a plan for the kinds of sex that you might want to have whilst also uh, making sure that you're checking in all the way through that it's still feeling okay that feels like it might be more of a way to go in many ways that that they are the practices of BDSM you know when we create a scene in BDSM uh, then you know there is often this idea that we're going to do this and this and there is a sense of there is going to be a beginning middle and an end and perhaps you could do more of that in your non-bdsm life too i hope that makes sense it's tricky stuff because um i don't want to uh, you know i'm giving you a certain degree of information about the the body that i think i have a bit of an understanding about but i don't think i'm an expert but also we have to hold those things quite lightly because again uh, again, just thinking about Catherine Angel's excellent book on this, uh, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, listen back to our podcast about this, is that when we only try to under- understand sex from a biological or a biomedical point of view, we're not really getting a full understanding of what a complex biopsychosocial thing it is. And so the important thing for you is to understand where some of this information that I've given you about the autonomous nervous system fits in with your own understandings. I would recommend... Uh, again, I'd re- recommend The Idiot Brain, which is a really good kind of general public um, uh, neuroscience book, basically written by Dean Burnett. It's really cool. I love his work. Um, and again, I would also recommend The New Bottoming Book and The New Topping Book by Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy. And um, also, Meg John has got some really great resources about um trauma generally they've written a trauma 101 at their website rewritingtherules.com uh, you've just searched for meg john barker and in, in uh, google and and their website comes up um and they've got some really great resources and further reading for you there as well cool so at the risk of repeating myself again but you know i was listening to a podcast the other day and i was thinking wow they're really talking about their patreon a lot i've remembered that now or oh, i must give them some money and then i thought why don't i do that on my podcast so if you like this podcast and you would like more and more regular and more exciting not more exciting but just more podcasts and please consider supporting it patreon.com forward slash culture sex 
relationships. And until next time, bye!